All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to At Close of Business. This is Simone Grogan with your top stories this Friday afternoon. Developer Golden Group has lodged a $72 million proposal to build 74 townhouses as part of its $4 billion plan to redevelop Belmont Park into a residential precinct. The Indonesian developer has submitted plans for projects on the 20 hectares of Belmont land that has been earmarked for development for more than a decade. The proposals, which the town of Victoria Park has recommended for approval, comprise 41 and 33 grouped dwellings respectively. The townhouses form part of Golden Group's broader plan to build more than four. 4,500 dwellings, as well as 6,000 square metres of retail space at the Belmont Park site. Racecourse operators Perth Racing wrote to council earlier this year expressing its support of the townhouse development, but said a barrier should be installed to separate the dwellings from the track. A metro in a South JDAP will decide on the proposal on September 22. In other news, a temporary injunction placed on seismic testing at Woodside Scarborough Project off the northwest coast has been hailed by traditional owners ahead of a second hearing later this month. The federal court decision means Woodside cannot conduct planned Scarborough seismic blasting until September 28 at the earliest and was granted to prevent work ahead of a full trial later in the month. The decision follows a legal challenge by traditional custodian Raylene Cooper and the Environmental Defenders Office, who allege they were not properly consulted ahead of the planned work. Offshore regulator, the National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority, granted approval for seismic testing at Scarborough in July. Ms Cooper argued she had not been adequately consulted under the conditions of the approval and that the approval by Nopsima was not legally valid. Woodside had planned to begin seismic testing last week but agreed not to blast until the injunction application was heard before the court. And lastly, a state government panel has received almost 100 complaints about WA councils in the past financial year, with about a fifth coming from one western suburbs council. The latest local government standards panel report, which was tabled in Parliament this week, showed 20 out of the 95 complaints received in the reporting period were related to the town of Cambridge. Complaints were received related to 25 local governments out of 139 councils in the state, according to the panel's report. A quarter of the complaints received in the year were about the western suburbs, with five complaints from the City of Netherlands and 20 from Cambridge. The report also shows the panel received the second highest number of complaints, being 13 over the City of Swan. And that's all from me this afternoon. You can read more on these headlines at businessnews.com.au. Coming up next on the podcast, Jack McGinn and Tom Zonmeyer go over the latest developments in Dongas. The business world is teeming with opportunities to succeed, and every day is a chance for the ambitious to learn, know and grow. Over recent years, we have built the greatest business journalist team in WA, delivering you the most trusted, comprehensive, intelligent and up-to-date news across every sector, every platform, every day. No fluff, all informative stuff. At Business News, we believe progress boils down to one simple habit, that is... What you subscribe to today shapes what you will become tomorrow. Subscribe to success. Subscribe to Business News. Visit businessnews.com.au forward slash subscribe for more information. Welcome back to At Close of Business. I'm Jack McGinn. Today I'm joined by Tom Zommeyer. Tom, how are you? I'm great. Yourself? I'm really well, thanks. Hey, Tom, it's been a really big week in energy in Western Australia. 
Um, it's always well, a big week in energy in Western Australia. Certainly feels that way <laughs> at the moment. Um, thought it would be a good time for us to sort of take a bit of stock and have a look at some of the major events that have taken place over the, the week that's been. Uh, what have you made of it all? Yeah, oh, look, I mean, a lot. I mean, it's such an important, critical industry to Western Australia, so there's little, you know, no doubt that we'll obviously follow everything that happens there very closely. In between there, um, I guess, yeah, there's been companies in court, there's been strike action, there's ongoing stuff with the inquiry, which is proving quite a uh, rich vein of uh, submissions and uh, interesting kind of ideas put forward through that. So, uh, yeah, no shortage for uh, someone covering energy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I must admit I'm, uh, I'm on that inquiry page regularly, just refreshing, checking that anything... It's to see if anything might have come up because they do just sort of appear there out of the blue. So anyway, look, I think uh, the big action of the last 24 hours has been around Woodside. The court decision to put a temporary pause on seismic testing at the Scarborough project. Now, the seismic testing was scheduled to start on September 7. That was the same day as you picked up that uh, they had started laying the trunk for the Scarborough project. So um, that uh, pipeline connecting... Scarborough to the processing facility there at Gorgon, I believe. Uh, at Pluto. At Pluto. Yes. There you go. Thank <laughs> you, Tom. Now, yeah, look, back to the, the the seismic blasting. The temporary pause put in place, the court in, imposed junction yesterday, that came as a result of an appeal by Raylene Cooper and the Environmental Defender's Office. Yeah, and so this all kind of, you know, a big part of it centred around the whale and its uh, significance to the um, Maratuna uh, and Nalama traditional owners of the area. There is a hill out the back of Karatha, which um, the TOs will say is um, shaped like a whale and it's a very important site. And so there's some very significant um, spiritual and sacred um, meaning behind that. Uh, so, yeah, that was one of the reasons brought in is that there's potential impact of seismic blasting on whales and so yeah, I guess that's what's been through uh, the court and what the court has uh, ruled on uh, right. yesterday. Right, so my understanding is basically that um, uh, the group that made the appeal was sort of alleging uh, that the regulator had granted approval without um, proper consultation by the company. Um, I believe that... Um, there was a case with Chevron late last year that sort of paved the way for this. And, and for Woodside's part, they've been pretty uh, pretty adamant that they've adapted the way that they consult based on the findings of that one. But the approval was granted on the condition that more consult consultation was carried out. I think that's the key to uh, what's happened here. Uh, they're going to be back in court later in the month. Yeah, and... Yeah, a lot of this revolves around um, the fact that where they're operating uh, Pluto and the Northwest Shelf facilities are all on Murujuga, which is an area um, protected by five traditional owner groups because the you know, the original traditional owners, the Yabarara people, uh, well, there's no more real direct descendants there, so that's looked after by the Murujuga Aboriginal Corporation, which is what most of the industry consults with. Um, whether or not that's enough, I guess, is the question that's being asked at the moment. So there'll be more to come in this story, and uh, and they'll be back in back in court, I believe, on the twenty sixth or twenty seventh of September. So that's still a little bit up in the air, but it's not that far away. So we'll be following that one here with interest, I'm sure. Now moving across to Chevron, 
and Offshore Alliance, we've been talking a little bit on the pod about the escalation of the dispute between those two parties. What's the latest there? Yeah, so this is uh, just a few hundred kilometres down the coast uh, from uh, Woodside. Just facilities. next door. Just yeah, next, next door, door, down the road. Yep. We used to do day trips down to Onslow all the time from Karatha. <laughs> um, so unlike Woodside, which did get a last-minute deal through with the union, uh, with the union, uh, Chevron hasn't been able to manage that, so they have um, the union members there uh, have agreed to take industrial action in the form of um, reducing workloads and not performing certain activities, and there was talk around escalating that each day or each week uh, up until the point where they can reach an agreeable outcome, um, potentially down like even involving full-blown strikes and um, complete stoppages. Yeah, I believe that the date that was originally provided for that was yesterday. Oh. Uh, now, I haven't had any update through to know whether the full strike action is taking place, but certainly the industrial action is ongoing. Well, because there has been a few um, issues around there in terms of um, gas supply, which um, I think the union and their members have kind of had to say, well, you know, we need to keep gas flowing to, to some degree at the end of the day. Yeah, certainly for the domestic market, there's been that that thing. So Chevron's actually uh, applied this week, earlier in the week. It feels like a long time ago now with everything else that's happened. But uh, earlier in the week, applied to Fair Work for these intractable bargaining declarations. Um, there's a hearing next week. And basically, this is a pathway that was introduced only in the middle of this year by the Albanese government. Um, and basically, it allows for a company to say, you know, we're not going to reach consensus, fair work, can you come in and mediate? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of like, you know, when you're fighting between you with your brothers and you can't figure out who gets what Lego, so your parent has to decide. My sister's 20 years younger than me and we have some very big fights, so <laughs> I can completely relate to that analogy. I'd hope with that kind of age difference <laughs> you'd be the winner most of the time. <laughs> You'd be surprised, Tom. <laughs> so, look, yeah, we touched on Domgas and, and moving to Domgas now. This has been a really interesting one. As I, as I mentioned, I've been following the Domgas inquiry pretty closely and there were some pretty, uh, pretty interesting hearings over the last week. Uh, Strike Energy. Uh, Strike is most likely the next gas producer to come online in the Perth Basin within a matter of weeks, I believe. The target they've set is, is the September quarter. Uh, at the Wauring project, uh, where they just acquired, or where they just struck a deal to acquire their joint venture partner, which is Talon. The inquiry also heard from Dom Gas Alliance, but we'll start with Strike. So Strike was represented by Stuart Nichols, CEO. Uh, it was an interesting back and forward. Strike is an interesting case because it has uh, government endorsement for an acceleration strategy that it put in place. Basically, it wants to bring uh, production from uh, four projects online by the end of 2025. And the government liked the sound of that, so they gave it this pathway um, to basically the streamline the approvals process and make things a little bit easier to get that gas online, um, obviously at a time when gas supply is quite critical. But Strike also spoke about its desire to get what the Waitsia joint venture has, which is an exemption which would allow it to export LNG from its projects on the Perth Basin. That's it's been a point of contention for um, quite a few of <laughs> a few of the um, submissions put through to date, especially for operators in that Perth or potential operators in that Perth Basin area. It certainly is, and I caught up I caught up with Stuart Nichols a, f- a few weeks ago, and uh, I think the line was, you know, when you look across the Brown Highway, um, you can see this project with this exemption, and why is it different? Strike argues basically that the lack of an LNG exemption, access to an international uh, spot market, which is what LNG has, impacts its ability to attract funding. Um, 
given the pricing for the pricing mechanism for domestic gas is is much less transparent and that's been a recurring theme throughout the submissions and throughout the hearings uh, at the inquiry they're saying that that's going to impact the scale of the rollout they're not going to be able to produce as much gas from their projects as if they were um, able to scale up knowing that they can tap into national markets as well the question that sort of came back at them was it would need to be a really big scale up if you're going to have a 15 percent domestic gas contribution versus a 100%, it's going to need to be a huge scale-up to actually contribute the same amount of gas as you would from a 100% uh, domestic project. Um, but I don't think that necessarily they are ask, asking for that that 15%, which is in line with the LNG arrangement. I think they're more asking for a bit more fairness in the system, basically one set of rules for everyone. So at the moment, uh, you've got some developers in the Perth Basin, the Waitsia Joint Venture, which is a JV of, of Japan's Mitsui & Co and uh, the Kerry Stoats-backed Beach Energy. They have a 50%. They're allowed to export 50% of the LNG from that project once it's up and running. Then you go up to the Canning Basin. Canning Basin onshore producers are, well, prospective onshore producers are subject to the same rules as the LNG producers offshore who are required to set aside 15% of their production for domestic use, it's there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I mean, a patchwork, and uh, it's in some instances you argue that you need to make place-based solutions and place-based rules and you know, place and time. But you know, in this case, I guess, the, the, and it's not just from the producers and potential producers, it's from the people you know buying that gas and using them, places like South 32 as well, which you're putting into this submission about the... Um, I guess lack of accountability and lack of um, knowledge and what goes on in, around um, the um, price mechanism and the 15% threshold. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the argument, the strong argument, as you mentioned, is you know, that having one rule for everyone, it, you know, I guess it levels the playing field and it makes some, makes some of those other projects a bit more viable to be able to tap into those international markets where we are seeing these huge price uh, inflation or price increases. Yeah, and you, you touched on um, on users and users there, and, and we heard from the Domgas Alliance, which has been a, a big force in, in this push for more transparency in the domestic gas market, basically representing the biggest users uh, of gas domestically, which are your Alcoas and, and your West Farmers and these sorts of companies, Yara. Uh, so they were represented by Richard Harris, um, who is the chair and their their calls are basically around transparency and pricing and supply. Uh, they feel that some operators are not meeting their fifteen percent obligation in good faith. They're calling for the ERA come on and and monitor and provide a more timely source of information around pricing and and supply to the market and to be able to recommend intervention to the minister. They argue that the system as it's set up at the moment sort of leaves that in the hands of the Department of Jobs, Science, Tourism and Innovation, Jitsi. Jitsi. And because that's the department that administers the state agreements that govern this whole thing. And uh, they argue that it's probably better off in the hands of the ERA, an organisation that already sort of reports for the electricity market, should be reporting for the gas market as well. Now, in their hearing, they singled out Woodside's Pluto. They said that the infrastructure there was inadequate to actually supply 15%. 
And it all comes back to that thing about 15%. And, yeah, the 15% thing is, yeah, at the moment, it, it can be provided over the lifetime of the project rather than a rolling, you know, 15% every year. And that, that seems to be the bone of contention. It's it's not annualised. Yeah. It's, it's not measurable over anything other than the lifetime of a project. You're only really going to know the lifetime of the project and where the gas has gone at the end of the project. And if you, you know, if you decide that it's more lucrative to supply... Uh, the gas into international markets at any certain point and you think we'll do this later, we'll do this later. Well, we don't know how much gas we're going to need in, in 20 years' time. What if you set aside the 15% for the end and then, you know, if we're not using gas anymore? <laughs> well, you know, some places are already going in that direction. If you look at Victoria, for example, I, mean, I know it's been very strongly ruled out here in WA, but... As you said, he's just saying 20 years, it won't be different. And hey, look, speaking on Victoria, it's probably a good way to wrap it off. I mean, Richard Harris, uh, as critical as the Dongas Alliance has been of the way things have set up, he did say that uh, other jurisdictions in Australia would give their left arm to have a policy in place like what we have here because it was a very forward-thinking thing for the government to do at the time. And it puts us in a much better position than um, some of the places I've raised. Absolutely. Tom, uh, big week in energy, big week in all manner of things around it. Um, thank you for joining me, sharing some insight and having a chat. Have a great day, mate. You too. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.